I, I couldn't answer that question. So maybe that 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 says something about Oof, who you are, much. right? <laughs> no, no, it's and and it's leaving me with a with a to do. Um, yeah, I will write it down. I will I'll make it one of my objectives for this year. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest, who's really, you know, an old friend of my high school. And, and we got connected a couple of weeks ago for the first time since, I think. Um, and he will introduce himself. Paul, please go ahead. Hey, hey Maurice. Hey, everybody listening. Um, true surprise to... Uh... To, to pick up the contact after such an incredibly long time. And if you then start thinking about everything that has happened in the meanwhile, like whole life has passed already, mm. right? You with kids. Uh, yeah, yes. I with kids. Yeah. You're still with the same uh, same girlfriend, wife. And yeah. In my case, the same happened, which I guess makes us somewhat of an exception mm-hmm. in, today's, uh, in today's society. Um, after, um, after school, um, always parted and I think a lot has to do with the fact that I went uh, went abroad very quickly after finishing the, the higher economic school in the Netherlands. Um, I went to do an MBA in uh, in Paris and in the US on my mind to different different cultures, seeing different things going on, getting a view of the world. Uh, I'd always traveled a lot as a child because my father used to do a lot of business in, in Asia mm. and traveling was still somewhat of an exotic uh, thing to do and so when we were young eight nine ten years old every year we went or to hong kong or india in hong kong and taiwan and um, so there was always like this little beach or this little animal that uh, we carried along and this interest for foreign cultures so when i came back after my mba um actually i had done a year of uh, of economy in uh, studied in, in in Rotterdam but I thought it was way too academic after what I'd done already back in the Netherlands um I was wondering what to do and where to go to typical thing at the time was uh, to work for uh, one of the big Dutch companies especially the ones uh, that had a big international network so I interviewed with with most all of the uh, the big guys like ABN Embro Bank ABN Bank at the time which was present in more than 50 countries all over the world and they offered this uh, this international a career path. They sent me first to Germany. Um, I worked there for two and a half years. Finance job in on the treasury trading and that type of stuff. From there, I went to Singapore to set up a derivatives desk, which was something relatively new at the time for Asia. Travel a lot in Asia again. Um, spent three years in Singapore. From Singapore, I went to Russia. It's kind of interesting if you see what's going on in the world uh, these days. Um, was there from 95 to 98 when Russia was really booming. It was before Putin came in. It was, let's say, the Yeltsin years. Um, and uh, it was before there was the first crisis in in Russia. I left just before that. Um, and then went to Latin America, where I'd never been before. I was sent to Uruguay as a relatively young guy in, um, in a relatively, let's say, mature society. It was the typical patriarchal kind of, um, uh, let's say, focused country, especially in the banking sector, rather traditional. Um, but the bank was going through a big uh, expansion, let's say, strategy, because they were buying a huge bank in in Brazil, uh, which also had operations in, in Uruguay. So I got to do the uh, integration of what was 
the typical Dutch organization with a Brazilian organization. It was an insurance company attached to that. Very interesting job. Turned out uh, all uh, quite well. And then the bank said, okay, uh, job well done. Now you can choose, but it has to be either New York, London, or Amsterdam. We didn't want to go back to the Netherlands. Um, so we picked New York. It was interesting timing because there I started doing investment banking. Um, a different world. Um, yeah, supposedly, the the place to be for uh, for investment banking. I thought it was a little bit of hoo-ha uh, and blown up, very arrogant character, tending to be a lot more than uh, than it probably was. And then on top of that, we had September 11. Uh, I was going in the train from Westport, where we lived, to uh, to New York. Arrived at Grand Central Station, and the first plane had just hit the towers. Um, and when I walked into uh, the office building, the second one hit. So. That, that, that became like a very interesting uh, couple of days. Um, of course, the world changed, especially uh, investment banking in New York changed. At the same time, Argentina got through a huge uh, financial crisis, which was starting to have its impact on, uh, on Uruguay, neighboring country. And there, the largest private sector bank got into trouble. It was a fraud, but there was, nobody was ever convicted. So um, it's, it's probably more related to the, uh, the Nazi situation that there was and people started moving money and well uh, nobody dared um, take that job to restructure the bank and uh, i got a phone call in new york where i wanted to come back um, because they needed somebody technical somebody not politically uh, linked to any of the of the party and i guess uh, somebody who dared uh, uh, move in such an environment bankers don't are not typically the bravest of uh, Mm. Uh, of, of our species. Um, by then, we had three kids, um, and we also thought it was like a good time to settle down uh, mm. because being kicked from a continent to continent every two and a half, three years. Uh, was very interesting uh, up until then, but we also said, you know what, it might be good for the little ones if they, they have somewhat of a, of a firmer ground under their feet and we don't have the feeling that we uh, that we would need to keep on moving every two and a half, three years. So we decided uh, we'd go back to Uruguay. Very interesting um, uh, period because the crisis became very deep, uh, extremely deep, like 30% unemployment, more than 50% youth unemployment were three banks that in the end uh, were about to collapse. I was asked to restructure those three banks, structure a good bank, bad bank, bank type of solution that all worked out very well. Uh, I was asked to uh, uh, to manage that for, uh, to manage the new bank. We worked very closely with IMF, with the World Bank. It was a super interesting uh, exercise um, and a successful solution, which was implemented in, in record time. And then, Suddenly, it was an election year, and the people who had hired me uh, were from one party, and the other party, uh, of course, wanted to get uh, the rain. So, um, a, a very public discussion started about the salary of the Dutch guy. How is it possible that a Dutch guy who's running mm. uh, the then uh, most important bank in uh, in this little country was making ten times more than the president of the country? Mm. And of course, it had to do with normal negotiation standards and uh, if you have an expat career in an international bank you make a certain salary and if you're a politician in uh, in another in another country you, you have another salary so that became like an interesting thing uh, Suzette was quite uh, impacted by that discussion when she was in the supermarket and she heard like the, the cash tellers uh, have a discussion about my salary um, I honestly couldn't care less because the only thing uh, that was important for me to do a good job and make sure that this bank got uh, off its feet and that uh, a couple of hundred thousand people got their uh, savings back. But then after a year, um, it was time to split ways. And, uh, and we had a look at each other. We said, okay, what are we going to do? And uh, we realized that um, we, we could go everywhere at that stage. We, uh, we could have gone back to the Netherlands. We could have gone to any country in the world. Economically, there was no specific reason to stay in Uruguay or uh, to move somewhere else, but uh, we had liked uh, Uruguay. Um, it, it has it had become most of our home uh, at that stage, and uh, and you know you've lived abroad a couple of times. It's uh, certain states people say, "So what is your home?" 
right? And if you haven't been for a long time living in the country where you were born, it becomes a difficult uh, question from time to time. My take was always a lot more practical than Suzette's. I was like, I'm home where my home is where I'm living and where I I choose to live. So, and where three of our uh, four kids by then had had been born. So, and uh, we decided to stay. Uh, Suzette was uh, doing very interesting work. We had set up a foundation focusing a lot on uh, on social and, uh, and health causes initially. Premature born babies was a big issue at the time. Suzette did a big campaign for that. Domestic violence was a was a pretty big issue. And and the foundation is still um, yeah, it's, it still exists. It's still present. It still okay. exists. To be honest, um, it's uh, very much defined by Suzette's let's say motivation. Um, mm-hmm. She is highly motivated. The last campaign we did was a campaign. Uh, focused on the sexual abuse of minors, which is a very big issue. And there's, there's a lot of links with uh, the criminal world uh, related to that. And uh, at the end of that campaign, she started getting like very unpleasant type of uh, pressure. And so she, she decided to take a break from the foundation for a while and focus more on uh, um, the other passion that she has, which is uh, the arts. Uh, she's fourth generation uh, photographers and on top of that she is an excellent uh, ceramics uh, artist so uh, she wanted to really get her fingers back into the ground after um, after a couple of these uh, these tough experiences and uh, the last couple of months we're talking again about what might be an interesting course to uh, to work on again um, she comes from the world of advertising um, and realizes that with that vision uh, especially as a foreigner in an environment where you don't have to be extremely careful that you become like a social outcast or whatever um, and and with that uh, knowledge and expertise of um, how to present certain issues that people in local society prefer maybe not to see right it's like for example domestic violence is a very difficult issue and it has become uh, an interesting discussion again uh, during everything that happened with the uh, with the pandemic and uh, and people locked up in their homes and yeah. she can do a lot and be very valuable in that respect and uh, yeah we uh, I think we are looking for what might be an interesting next uh, next course one of the things we've been talking about quite a bit lately is uh, related to the elderly. When I go to the Netherlands, I see it, for example, as a big issue. Uh, I see mm-hmm. when I go to the Netherlands now with my Latin American background, right? Because here mm-hmm. it is much more family oriented still. It's much more across uh, the age groups that everybody is meeting with each other, taking care of each other. Uh, it is more, much more of a social cohesion. Um, and when we go back to, and I take the Netherlands as an example, that you see that people don't care that much anymore about the elderly, right? And um, they become more of a problem than that they are a part of life. And and if if you have to go and, and visit uh, them once a month might be a lot for some people already. Whereas, so we, we, find, we find it kind of shocking, uh, even mm-hmm. though if you, if you would define it simply as care for the elderly, then probably the Netherlands is a country uh, which has a very high uh, high level of uh, of care. But if you go about real quality of life, and that's that's like a huge uh, discussion. What is quality of life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have been asked so many times by our friends and families, and, and uh, what the heck are you guys doing in Uruguay? Because who knows Uruguay? No? And you try to explain it, and you, you get totally stuck. And in the end, you, can, you say, "Okay, you're invited. Why don't you come over and you get a feel yourself?" And after a couple of days, you say, "Ah, now we understand." Uh, but it, it is this concept of uh, of quality of life, whereby whereby not everybody has two cars, uh, whereby um, let's say in economic terms, uh, the wealth of the people uh, for sure is much less than. Many people in the more developed world, I'm, I'm very careful of uh, of using that term because I don't agree with that term anymore. Mm-hmm. The way it's uh, it's being used, just generally. to make sure, because this is audio, right? So the yeah. all just you know show the 
quotation marks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. There's so many other issues and and elements that that play a very important role in defining quality of life, right? And it has to do with how much time you have for the other one. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I just mentioned, the the interaction between the different age groups and generations. Maybe you can measure it in terms of certain type of uh, diseases. Uh, there might be some welfare diseases, mm-hmm. uh, mental diseases, which might be much much more uh, profound in uh, in the so-called developed world as compared to the more Latin type of, uh, of world and maybe in Asia and Africa you you find the same uh, the same issue so I'm, I'm not that sure everything related to stress and burnout uh, I don't mm. I'm not sure whether there's a Spanish word for them for example um, mm. and for sure there will be people who who have a comparable feeling but I don't think you'll find anywhere near the numbers that you uh, might be able to find in the so-called developable. So um, I don't know how we got here, uh, this issue, but um, uh, the campaign for the elderly. Yeah. Um, The elderly can play a fantastic role in uh, society, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And many for sure would love to play uh, a very active role. And if you see what the impact of, and we see it in our kids because Mm -hmm. they they had their grandparents far, far away, and they saw them once or twice a year. And my mother, who's now 85 years old, um, she uh, she won like a, a second youth when one of our kids uh, decided that he was going to talk to her at least once a week and start sharing his most intimate uh, life experiences and details with her. And was sending her pictures and when my mother didn't answer quickly oh. enough he would give her a call and say hey uh, grandma why don't you answer me and mm. he would say hey grandma i also want to get a picture from you and that totally changed my mother and uh, this is like an, an example very near and uh, nearby mm-hmm. but uh, i see she's better than she has been in the last uh, 25 30 years yeah. probably and that role is it, it's a two-way type of uh, of interaction because also my son uh, has become like a better person hmm. uh, thanks to that contact and uh, and they both win in that respect. So I think that th- there might be something there. Yeah, we haven't yeah. defined yet what and how, um, but there have been, for example, in Uruguay, there's quite some people who uh, left Europe after the Second World War. Um, there are people who lived in um, some of the, the concentration camps in, uh, in Germany. These people speaking to classes of kids, they can give them fantastic experiences, and yeah. right. And we and I think we should do everything to try to incorporate them one way or the other actively in society, uh, because they have so much to give. And uh, it, it might be too difficult for them to do it by themselves, and, but with a little bit of motivation and and maybe creating some framework around it. Mm. Uh, well, there, there should be something there. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate you know you bringing this up. Um, so I I want to do a couple, a couple of things, and that's um, you know tell the listeners um, to really reach out to us, you know if they have ideas and and uh, you know thoughts around this because I I think we are you you are on to to something. That's one. Second, um, you know as as part of this uh, podcast series, I also do a special series about my organization. It's a enough for all series. And as a result, I reached out to, you know, ex-CEOs of our company, you know, who are 80 years and up. And uh, mm-hmm. so I've had you know, similar conversations I'm, as I'm having uh, now with you. And, uh, you know, so much valuable information, uh, so much knowledge, uh, wisdom. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I agree with you, you know, the fact that I talked with them they appreciate it and I appreciate it and, and something beautiful came out of it. So, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic if I hear what you're, what you're saying here and, and it's absolutely necessary to, um, mm. yes, our young generation um, has the future. Um, and when I talk with my guests and I ask them, where do you see hope? The younger generation is always mentioned. But we need that you know, rich wisdom of uh, our elderly as well. 
because um, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's so much that they still can contribute and have experience. So I really appreciate it. But the third thing in relation to this is because when you started to talk about, um, you know, what is the quality of life, etc., that's very much also linked with sustainability. And I really would like to bring you, you know, because there you have done a lot as well as part of your career, you know. So can you can we go there? Okay, so when I left, let's say the the big organization world, mm-hmm. I decided to set up a boutique, and, and initially we called it an investment banking boutique. I think today it's more a project development and investment banking boutique, um, much more focused on the development of projects, especially in the renewable any uh, renewable energies areas. Initially focused a lot on on structuring uh, big financings for projects where the banks wouldn't lend. Uh, because it was too too long or too difficult or whatever, and uh, that there was something we could uh, we could do there. Um, in the last, I would say six seven years, probably we started focusing a lot on uh, renewables first as advisors to um, to technical teams, engineering groups uh, who wanted to set up what you call utility scale wind or solar parks. So wind and uh, and, and photovoltaic. Uh, Pike is generating energy for the grid, for um, let's say the, the big users. Mm-hmm. When Argentina opened up with uh, Macri uh, some five, six years ago, we decided to um, to start developing ourselves early stage. So um, either we teamed up with uh, engineers and um, found a, a good piece of land with fantastic wind, designed a pipe on it, and then structured, let's say, the whole financial part, which is is, is a relevant element in uh, in these projects. There we became a developer, first in, in wind and solar. And the last two and a half years, two and a half years ago, we started, uh, we got involved with a project in, in California, uh, which is focusing on the production of uh, green hydrogen from waste from biogenic waste stream, which is a technology that comes originally from uh, from NASA. It has to do with uh, heat shields and you get the very high temperatures and you bring the, the waste basically back to a molecular level. And from there, you start uh, building it back to, uh, to green hydrogen, uh, which should become a very important tool in decarbonization of, uh, of society over the next. 20, 30, 40 years, uh, probably. Um, the the costs of uh, producing green hydrogen today is still still very high compared to the alternative, which is gray hydrogen from uh, from coal or uh, or natural gas. But everybody starts understanding that uh, there's, there's not much of an alternative anymore, and, and we need to go there. And we need to pay a little bit of extra attention to uh, uh, to the climate, and yeah, then suddenly things like the war in uh, in Ukraine might help accelerate uh, this whole push. We started in California and then mm-hmm. um, we did some additional analysis and we saw a couple of the very large global developers uh, move to, pr- to produce green hydrogen from offshore wind. So you see these huge wind parks being built mm-hmm. in the sea. Um, especially in the North Sea uh, between the Netherlands and, uh, and the UK and Scandinavian countries. Um, and, and we said, yeah, you know, uh, that all makes sense, but you can do that uh, onshore in the deep, deep south of, uh, of Patagonia in Chile and, uh, and Argentina. Uh, and you can produce the same type of, uh, of efficiencies and energy levels, uh, but you can build onshore Whereas in, in the rest of the world, you, you would have to do with offshore, which is a lot more expensive and a lot more challenging. We, we have now taken a few positions um, in lands that would be uh, uh, very apt, very useful to, uh, uh, or uh, have ideal properties close to existing seaports, um, because this parts of the world have been uh, uh, doing a lot of uh, export of oil and gas and, and mining products already. So the infrastructure is there. The land... Uh, the land is there. You don't bother anybody there. There's no environmental issues. So uh, this is something that we're working on now. And uh, our projects uh, have become suddenly a lot larger than uh, than what we used to do in the past. So yeah, 
was an, uh, an interesting step. And uh, every day we're more uh, more focused and dedicated to uh, uh, to let's say climate related uh, solutions. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, um, through a very good and deep contact we have with the Institut Pasteur, which is uh, one of the best uh, research organizations in the world. Um, who happened to have like a huge uh, subsidiary through an old political agreement between France and uh, Uruguay. Uh, they have a very big subsidiary in, uh, in Montevideo and uh, world-class science is being done there. Um, but they kept it to, let's say, curiosity-driven science. And at a certain stage, I had a discussion with the, uh, with the executive director there and I said, well, why are you guys sticking to ex- to just curiosity-driven science? Why not try to convert it into new medication or uh, solutions um, that can really be marketed uh, globally? And he said, the yeah, Apple, that sounds great, but there's no money for that. I said, but money shouldn't be the problem, right? If the research is uh, and the, the quality of the work is as good as you're telling me, and it is really good because it's being uh, published, for example, in nature or in science or like the world-class scientific uh, journals. Uh, if it is that good, then let us take care of uh, arranging and finding the money for it. So uh, that's, that's another part. And uh, well, before we started our, our talk, we spoke about some today diseases uh, like, like cancer and, and, and a whole range of other diseases. And if you see what those scientists are doing, um, it's quite likely that in... 10, 15, or 20 years, we'll be saying we were barbarians 10, 15, 20 years ago in the way we tried to treat diseases like cancer. And, um, and there will be new ways to uh, first to diagnose it so that we uh, that you can treat it much, much sooner in stage one or two rather than three or four, which makes it a lot more difficult. Uh, and you can treat it with um, much less invasive or... Um, uh, or destructive technologies than than what is what is happening today. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's that's another area that we focus on a lot. So yeah, very interesting. I have three uh, quick questions for you around it, and I, I yeah. do realize there might not be easy easy questions. Uh, that I'm going to ask you anyway. The, the first, the first one is um, because when you, you know, so what you were saying is, is uh, you know, you you can develop those new type of uh, type of energies in areas where you don't bother uh, people, the environment, or whatever. So, um, what is what we see in our work? What the, the population that is often for, forgotten is the indi- indigenous population of you know. Yeah people in the, in the, uh, living in the rainforest, in the Chaco area, for example. Um, can you say something about that in terms of where you work or where you guys are planning to do that stuff? And if, if that's an issue, how do you go around that or how about that? That's one. Second uh, question that I have for you is, um, you know, you're alluding to the crisis of the war in Ukraine that will have you know, enormous implications for the world. I mean, wheat, you know, we, we know that if they, if this war is going on, North Africa and the Middle East will have huge problems because 50% of the wheat will come from, from Ukraine. Um, so, uh, you know, fuel will be, in, you know, prices of gas are going up. Are you able or are we able as a world to accelerate the more green, uh, you know, uh, energies uh, there? Is that, is that, is that possible? Um, and if not, that will create all kinds of additional uh, challenges, right? Um, and the third thing is, you know, b- b- I always ask questions about the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah. And uh, I know that you have been very involved with that. And my question there is, um, if you would like the listeners to know anything about 17 Sustainable Development Goals, you know, what would that be? So I, I thought, okay, they are somehow related. Um, <laughs> interesting yeah Let, let's start with indigenous people i went last week to uh, the area where we're planning to uh, uh, to develop this type of project they will all be su- subject to a very strict set of uh, regulations um this this type of project are so large for example uh, 
uh, we would work in modules of one gigawatt uh, minimum with thousand megawatts. And just to give you an idea, the investment um, required for that would be some two and a half billion dollars. Um, this type of project cannot be financed in local markets, so you have to go to international markets. Uh, and ideally, you would get organizations like the World Bank or uh, some other multilaterals to, to come along and participate. Uh, they have extremely strict sets of um, uh, requirements and conditions to, uh, to adhere to. Um, and for sure, um, not bothering and not impacting indigenous life uh, is one of them in general. But um, in this case, uh, we went there last week. There's nothing there. Because the climate is so harsh that nobody wants to live or can live there. There's there's no um, no economic activity to speak of. There is, um, for example, we visited one one of the properties and uh, yeah, there is a there is a house there, and meet some third generation British family mm-hmm. with fantastic history um, of their great grandfathers who came and how they came and how they found property and uh, the stuff that they still have there and, and they speak an impeccable English and then the guy is like if you he often the door comes out and it's, it's I had to look twice if it wasn't Sean Connery himself right it's, it's like like this totally strange thing but nothing else there it's he his wife and uh, their daughter living there their daughter has a degree in environmental engineering very let's uh, say uh, passionate about um, not causing big destruction and uh, at the same time very interested to see that we develop a project in a very sustainable in the most sustainable way possible uh, that will help the climate one way or the other and yeah in the past they were uh, they were having sheep there uh, you have to think about tens of thousands of uh, of flock of uh, of sheep um, that's that has gone already, the area has dried out. All these elements uh, are being taken in consideration. If there were to be indigenous people, which in that area they're not, um, either we wouldn't even touch it and we would leave it because it's very difficult to get an international financing um, uh, in the first place. So it it would invalidate your project uh, or you would sit with them and make them part of a solution and but well, we haven't uh, we haven't had to do that yet mm-hmm. because uh, there's there's very few of that argentina is a huge country right it's mm-hmm. uh, and it only has well 40 ish million uh, people much concentrated in the big cities and in that part of the country nobody's living there in terms of uh, uh, let's say environmental impact it's so incredibly large and uh, that area, in the end, that may sound like a little bit uh, uh, unrespectful, but it's it's environmentally even relatively poor. Very harsh lands. It's there's there's nothing special growing there. Uh, the biggest uh, well risk for a developer, which is a, a hardcore developer, but would be that he would um, run into a uh, in an old dinosaur. In a skeleton of a dinosaur, because it used to be the play garden of the mm-hmm. dinosaurs. Well, if you find that, no problem at all. You start working with a couple of the geologists there, and uh, yeah, you just make sure that you uh, uh, that you find the best solution for the dinosaur skeleton, either building a local museum or bringing it to the museum, and uh, you mm-hmm. just move. You just move a kilometer further down the road where there's nothing mm-hmm. there. So. Um, in that respect, no issues. Um, if there were some relevance for indigenous life, uh, the, it would totally be taken into consideration, mm-hmm. or you would walk away from it and say, "Okay, now let's let's not do anything here." Okay. Um, it, it's not the old story of the miners, right? The miners, mm-hmm. the big mining companies coming in and don't giving a shit, and and they you know, they get into a jungle and and and. All the poisons they jump it in the in the river and no, that's for sure that's not happening and um, and, and there's a lot of conscience let's say uh, around the development of these type of uh, of projects. So I would say in our case, um, for sure uh, there the, there won't be any issue related to it. 
And in general, I'm seeing that even developers from or more hardcore type of developers who um, might not be, for example, we have signatures to the uh, UNPRI principle, which is a United Nations uh, principle. So uh, it, it is part of our uh, DNA these days. That uh, it's one of the first things we look at. And it, if it wouldn't work, we, we step away from it. There might be more hardcore developers caring a little bit less they wouldn't get financing for the projects if uh, uh, if there would be problems uh, created to let's say what we consider uh, responsible development principles and issues mm. uh, and in a country like argentina um, it's very easy to get to the press to for opposition groups to to voice their uh, concerns and and um, um, yeah, I think it's it's not happening. It's not happening anymore mm-hmm. uh, as it was in the uh, in the old days. Let's say. Okay. That's that's good to hear. Let's go to the, the the question that I asked in terms of you know are you able to accelerate now because of the situation in in Europe. Uh, Let's say from the the financial and cost side, yes, it would be possible um, if governments would decide to provide bigger subsidies to make this economically viable. Um, Today, uh, green hydrogen as such is uh, is not economically viable because uh, the the production costs are still too high. It will come down substantially. Um, And in five to 10 years, it will be competitive with uh, with with carbon, uh, typical carbon type of uh, uh, of energy sources. If it's possible to make it economically viable, just throw money at it one way or the other, and you have the perfect excuse now, right? Say, okay, we cut off uh, Russian gas, and doesn't matter what it costs. Uh, we we need to be clear as a world here, and we need to send clear messages. So so let's do it. But logistically. It's somewhat of a challenge, and um, there are already pretty substantial logistical issues uh, uh, currently still related to uh, to the pandemic or economy picking up relatively quickly after a period of budgetary uh, inactivity. Um, and for example, the big bottleneck today to produce large green hydrogen facilities would be electrolyzer plants and electrolyzer capacity. You you can't scale that up. Uh, quicker than uh, it is being done right now, which means, for example, we were talking to uh, to Siemens, one of the largest uh, probably uh, construction companies, engineering construction companies in this area, uh, and they're already talking about 2025, 2026 mm. um, for delivery of sufficient electrolyzer capacity for a project in in Argentina, mm. and and they cannot scale it up quicker than they're doing so. No, uh, economically can be done. I think physically, very hard to uh, uh, that it really happens. So most likely, uh, we will have to start tapping gas again in areas where we didn't want to do it. And mm. you know, there is there's, there's going to be some uh, some serious disruption issue in uh, in markets because of uh, not wanting to take Russian gas and oil. Yeah. What about sustainable development goals? What do you would like the listeners to know? Yeah, there's there's many, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's 17. I'm not sure who your listeners are, but I assume in general it will be a pretty well-educated bunch of uh, of people mm-hmm. uh, concerned uh, about the world and that we're doing the right thing. And mm-hmm. um, And I think most of them will have one way or the other the biggest part of the 17 uh, principles uh, already uh, consciously or unconsciously incorporated in their lives, right? Mm. Uh, and it, uh, and for us coming from, let's say, the West, let's call it the Western world rather than developed world, uh, the no hunger, the 
good education, quality education, good health, well-being, gender equality, clean water. It's, it's all very obvious. The, the question, I'm not sure whether whether it is a bigger issue than the 17 principles and that um, one of the big issues I see these days is uh, the whole issue of polarization and um, when you set people up against each other in the end and you get you get parties who argue that the 17 development principles as such shouldn't even be necessary or it's uh, uh, it's an invention and it doesn't make sense and it's 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 making that certain uh, new developments don't get uh, done, and but it's. I think it's just if you look at it with a common sense approach, uh, you will always want to have all of the seventeen principles, one way or the other, uh, incorporated in in whatever you do, right? And if you fly a little bit more, a little bit less, well, that's that's really um, that's. Has more to do with how you fill in uh, each of those uh, seventeen principles. Uh, if you're asking me whether there's one is more important than the other, I would say uh, it depends very much on uh, where you are or in what mm. position you are. Um, and if you don't have access to clean water and sanitation, I would say, well, that's the most important of all of them. But if you live in an area uh, of, uh, of big conflict, yeah, then uh, probably you have other priorities and. Uh, um, than strictly focusing on trying to reduce inequalities, right? Uh, so I, I'm not sure whether it's it's even related to the Maslow principle or whether certain of the 17 uh, you need to have satisfied before you can work on the other ones or not. I think um, it's it's just an obligation from all of us to uh, uh, to try to incorporate all of them or have all of them one way or the other uh, as your normal part of life and uh, yeah and for you and i clean water and sanitation is not something we have to think about and maybe we have to work a little bit more on uh, on gender equality let's say the whole race issue you are in the us i'm looking at what's happening from outside the, the us that whole discussion and i'm going like mm. uh, everything related to the polarization of of discussions and, and positions and society. That's my biggest worry uh, today, I think. Okay. So, yeah. No, I think that's helpful uh, for the listeners, uh, Paul. And they will and they will be very dynamic, no? But because mm -hmm. if you ask me today and, and yeah. you say, no, Paul, give me one which is the most important. Okay. Mm -hmm. Today it's easy to say it's peace and justice, right? Peace, justice, and strong institutionality, which is, mm -hmm. I think, number 16. Um, of course, because we all have it on, on front yeah. of our mind, and but um, yeah, but if that issue wouldn't have been there, well, I cannot say that climate action is more or less important than uh, than no hunger. Uh, I would say no hunger is probably like the first one we should uh, we should focus on. But I would say quality education. If we don't work on that, then everything else is in vain as well. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have to yeah. learn all 17 by by heart, right? And just incorporate it yeah. the whole time. And yeah. No, absolutely. Hey, I'm going to do something difficult for you. I have a number of it's questions, a kind of a rapid fire. Um yep. But uh, I'm going to request you to, you know, answer with some keywords or come up with, you know, a, a tweet. You know, if you're up for it, then I will shoot a couple of questions uh, in your direction. Um, the first one is, well, you know that uh, this podcast is a spin-off of my 100-mile walk and that I started more than 10 years ago to raise money, awareness around hunger, poverty and injustice. If you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, so 15 to 20 miles per day, what is the course you would walk 100 miles for? Um, tough one, right? Um, I would rather keep it uh, close to myself uh, than trying to define a general course. Today, I would, I would walk 100 miles, I would walk 1,000 miles for uh, 
someone from Putin's direct environment taking care of him, right? Uh, would be the easy one. Uh, but I would say in general, I think it's, it's a very interesting uh, concept, the 100 miles. Uh, I would love to do it with somebody who's going through a personal issue. Um, do it with a group of uh, interesting people to have, uh, uh, to get away from our daily, more materially focused life and be in an environment to take up a couple of discussions about more, more complicated issues. Or maybe not more complicated, but some of the challenging questions of the future that will come to us. Uh, climate change, democracy in general, what is what is the right way to to look at democracy? How should it be dealt with? Uh, maybe it's not a two-party system like you have in the US with controlled media. Maybe it's not, uh, uh, well, the, 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 the big, let's say, on, on big discussions. Mm -hmm. uh, have them in an environment where you're walking 100 miles together. I think that's a lot more useful and interesting than uh, try to do it in uh, in an auto with your fifth cup of coffee uh, in front of you and uh, some potato chips and the Coca-Cola. Um, so I, I would keep it close. Talk about raising kids, how they should be raised, about education, how to make quality education available to uh, to everybody. And I would do it for everybody who... Um, uh, who has to get out of an environment in which he is, uh, which is causing him problems. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's probably the, the perfect way to, uh, uh, to get like a different vision on, uh, uh, on a problem that you think might not be resolvable uh, when you don't do it, when you don't get out there. Great, thanks. Those, although those... although you, have, you have sent now five tweets out um, and not one. Uh... <laughs> What what drives you? What drives you in life, Paul? When I left Russia, one of the guys who uh, who I worked with uh, was a young, extremely talented Russian guy. And uh, the day I left, he said, "Pavel Petrovich," which is what he was his Russian nickname for me. Mm -hmm. um, you are a good man, and uh, I've left that for a long time. I didn't pay much attention, and I spoke to this guy um, a week ago just figuring out how he is. He's in Russia. Um, he's thinking about uh, fleeing the country because he says it's a disaster. He wants to get to Turkey. But anyway, um, and I think I think it's that principle. Just I want to be a good man. Um, I want to be a good man for my, for my wife. I want to be a good man for my friends, for my kids. I would like to give them an example to show them the way what I think might be important issues. Uh, I have the luxury of uh, maybe thinking a little bit more today than, uh, uh, and I'm thinking a lot about the future and, and what might be happening there and, and try to raise some awareness in that respect. And well, not much more than that. I, I, I don't try to have much bigger drives than that, but from that principle, anything can come as well. Um, if I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best embodies who you are, which song or piece of music would you pick? I, I can't, you know, and I know, I know you've been asking this question and I have been looking at many different songs and no, and, and actually it's, it's a debt I have with myself to mm. allow myself more time to get deeper into songs. I couldn't answer that question. So maybe that 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 says something about Oof, who you too are, much. right? <laughs> no, no, it's and and it's leaving me with a with a to do. Um, yeah, and I will write it down. I will I'll make it one of my objectives for this year. If I ask you, well, no, actually, we we've we've talked a lot already about what we're issue at the moment. Uh, I would like to hear from you, where do you still see hope? Yeah, there's there's a lot. I think you mentioned early on that uh, everybody talks about the, the new generation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's true. Um, at a certain stage, I remember it was an impacting moment. I had my father when I was, I think, 21. Um, he said, I want to congratulate you. You know so much more and you're so much... Um, conscious than I was when I was 20, uh, 21. I, I feel like I was a kid compared to you. I'm saying the same about my kids now. 
Um, and I think the the youth right now, um, it's, it's very easy to criticize them for, right? Uh, let's say everything related to their digital worlds and whatever. But I think that in general, they are more conscious than us. They're more, uh, they're more involved. They're less accepting of injustice. They, um, their concepts of what is fair and what is not fair, that they can do more with it than we could when we were young, right? It's They have immediate access to all type of uh, social media sources and, and ways to express themselves or find groups uh, who they can work and talk with um, to do something about what they would consider uh, fair or unfair and right or not right. And well, the most obvious example of, of all this uh, is Greta, whether you like her or not, but he, you think it's mm-hmm. it's good or not, but I think it's a fantastic example, and not only for activist purposes, but also let's say uh, let's say all these young tech guys finding fantastic solutions um, to issues that we considered hard to resolve, or all these fintech guys who managed to get hundreds of millions of people uh, into the real economy uh, with simple solutions, and it's I think that's fantastic. That, that gives a lot of hope. Um, I think um, everything I'm seeing in the in the biotech and life sciences uh, world uh, is giving a lot of hope. Um, I think the world is uh, and has been constantly improving. I think that will continue one way or the other. I think we have to be careful about feeding our mental part uh, sufficiently. Maybe not losing uh, track of spirituality. Uh, and we didn't speak a lot about that. Um, and I'm not saying it should be religion or a religion, but I think it's very important that um, but that that we do not lose uh, that part that we own, that we don't think everything is hard science and there's a necessary uh, a hard solution for for every so, issue. So, you know? yeah, so what do you see happening then among the youth and spirituality? Is that different yeah. than than when you grew up? Yeah, for sure. For sure, it's different, uh, but not necessarily. Well, uh, ours was more, much more. Okay, you become part of, right? Uh, you're baptized. You become a Roman Catholic, or you're being put in a certain box, and, and that's what you work with and what you're supposed to work with. When I talk about youth, I have, I think, two perspectives. One of the more Latin American type of uh, um, oriented youth, which where religion, especially Catholicism, still plays a more important role. The other one, let's say the more Western world, uh, where people have become pretty cynic about uh, many things relating to uh, to religion, to the more traditional religions as such, and uh, where, where some of them start trying to look for uh, different types of spirituality or totally undefined ways of uh, of spirituality. I'm not sure. I am. I understand why people are critical with uh, the typical religions, and there's just too many things that, that that they're not doing right. It's too much big organization type of stuff, and and all decent, all centralized way of uh, of defining things and and arranging things, and it, it's just not flexible enough for uh, for the new generation. Um, but I think that there we might be going to a gap there because it's it's. It has been, or it is so easy to say, no, no, I don't want to be part of this religion that uh, doesn't allow this or this, or that committed big mistakes in this area, or that is acting in a certain way that I don't want, or that that don't give enough room to women, which I think is like extremely critical issue still. Yesterday, for example, International Women's Day, uh, in our office, um, we have half uh, of our staff is uh, is female um, from different nationalities, um, religious. And I made a pledge that I would not say that I'm an active Roman Catholic until the first female Pope. And in Spanish, that's Papa. And then I was correct and say, so until there is a mama, you will not. <laughs> I said, yeah, you know what? Let's do it because it's ridiculous, right? That uh, the role of women in a in in a religion uh, is is so underappreciated. Uh, let's say so. Um, I, I understand 
the youth that they say, okay, I don't want to be part of this, but there is no easy alternative for them. And uh, maybe they have not been doing enough themselves to uh, try to find alternatives. So but there is a gap, I guess. There is a lack. There is, and, and I don't know what, but something needs to be done, I think, because it is important to have, right, this, well, let's, let's call it something related to spirituality. Because you will need it in times of hardship and you will need it when when you're looking for hope or it's not only in that moment that you should start looking for it. And ideally, in the end, I think it's it's about very easy uh, uh, values also. It's it's love, it's helping the other, it's this this small type of uh, community concepts and, and and norms and values be sweet to the other one help each other online like the, the typical rules that that most religions do apply let's see how we can get them incorporated one way or the other through something that not necessarily is so strictly defined as a religion that can easily be denied or attacked or not accepted by uh, by big groups of people so If I speak about the Latin American part still, um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to uh, favela to a poor, very poor neighborhood uh, where there was a church with a fantastic uh, father um, working with all the kids there. And like like many of those favelas, for sure, there was a, a presence of some drug lords there. And uh, for sure, there is uh, serious violence there. And there's a lot of domestic violence mm-hmm. going on. And the arm of the government and the public services doesn't get there. And luckily, the church, and in this case, it's really the Roman Catholic Church, um, does establish its presence with a very dedicated father who does give the kids um, uh, and provide them some some framework of not only uh, religion, but education, sanitation, um, good values, some love, some protection, some some healthcare, some basic healthcare. So they still play a very important role, right? And, and I don't know if the government doesn't get there, uh, who does? Well, I, I assume uh, your organization is trying to do a lot in that respect as well. And, mm-hmm. um, and in that respect, yeah, it's still super important to have uh, this, this support part uh, mm-hmm. of the religion, whether it should be under a different format or not, I don't know. But uh, I'm I'm very uh, glad and uh, and thankful that uh, that the church is doing that, and I see they do play an extremely important role in that respect. You know, these conversations always go fast. Um, I have one last question. Uh, for you, you know, and I give you a minute to to answer because I don't have more, much more than that. Um, but I I really would like to thank you for for your time and and you know sharing your knowledge and experience. And for me, it's fascinating because um, I think yeah, I really we had not seen her since in, seen each yeah. other since high school, and we we picked up our conversation uh, two weeks ago or something, um, and it it feels like. <laughs> we were at high school yesterday still great so that's 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 really that's really great uh well may, maybe a little bit more maturity but not much at least not from my side so yeah. so um paul um yeah any last message invitation question for the listeners if you a minute be sweet be soft be more open be more empathic um i'm an immigrant and I'm, it sounds like, like a little bit strange, right? Being a Dutchman and, but I'm a, an immigrant in Uruguay. I've been an immigrant for a couple of, or a visitor for a couple of years in many different countries. Um, and I've been always treated extremely nicely by, uh, by the people, especially by the Uruguayans where, where we've made a home now. Um, there's differences between us and between them, uh, but yeah, we've become part of uh, of local society. And, and just being empathic uh, can resolve so many issues. Um, that's on the soft side. On the hard side, I would say challenge yourself. 
continuously keep learning um, changes uh, are already the norm and they will become a lot lot uh, faster in uh, in the next couple of years and everything which is coming to us from the world of artificial intelligence virtual reality robotics biotech tech climate tech uh, the, the metaverse blockchain it's 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 not things that that we should be saying okay uh, we don't need to know about that anymore no no it's going to be one way or the other very important part of our lives and uh, and the lives of our kids so better keep on learning great thanks a lot i i uh, appreciate it and and uh, you know good luck with everything you do uh, mm. keep on doing it Same to you we're going to see each other it's not going to take another 30 odd years i guess <laughs> let's, yeah, let's try let's to make something it about that right well you right. you really um tickled my my um you say yeah, imagination and curiosity about Uruguay. I still need to learn Spanish, so so because um, I I really think that's a big loss if if you go to Spanish-speaking countries and you don't speak Spanish. So I'm not very good with language. So that's that's going to be a challenge. But uh... <laughs> well, keep keep learning. Right? <laughs>